Jeff Hugel, the comeback king, is a larger-than-life character whose natural warmth and ready smile loomed large over the Australian swim team for many years. What was the childhood tragedy that shadowed his otherwise fairy tale rise to the top? And how is he dealing with a recent, very public brush with the law that sent he and his family into hiding? Ah. Howdy. Good to see you, Jeff. Very good to see you too, Bruce. Come and sit. Thank you. Hey, you could still swim for Australia, yeah. mate. Look oh, at you. Oh, mate, Look, I don't know. It's nice, to, nice to put a different suit on these days. Welcome to Off the Record. Yeah, thank you. Two careers, two comebacks, and the last one pretty personal. Yeah, it's, uh, look, it's been tough. I, I, I think um, in terms of dealing with it, uh, what I'm really grateful for is my family um, and also the community. The community has just been, um, you know, some, somewhat surprising. It, it's been really, really good. And Jeff, we're talking about the day that you and your wife Sarah at the Ramwick Racecourse were busted with cocaine. You represented a lot of things to us and it was like, a, wow, it was a real jarring slap in the face, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. You could, you could say that. Um, I, I could understand how a lot of people would have that impression. Um, I, I think for us the day was, um, you know, we just got caught up in the moment. Um, and, and with that came a, a pretty poor decision. Um, and then that's something that's uh, come back to, uh, to haunt me and will haunt me pretty much for the rest of my life. You know, we all make mistakes and it's just, just live it, learn it and move on. And for me it was a, a terrible mistake to make um, and one that I never want to put myself in that situation ever again. Um, you know, my, my old outlook used to be, be your best, right? But these days, my outlook is, is, you know, accept it, own it and conquer it, you know, because the moment you accept something, uh, then you take ownership for it, and when you take ownership for it, then you conquer it. You were a great swimmer, and, and what a natural talent. I mean, the great Michael Phelps' famous coach, Bob Bowman, said you were the ultimate technician as a butterfly, and if there was anyone to challenge Michael, it would be you. Well, uh, to ha hear those comments from Bob Bowman is, for me, is, is quite, yeah, it's, I mean, he's produced the, the best Olympian of all time as well, um, a guy that I had a lot of pleasure racing as well. Um, but, but for me, butterfly was something that just came really, really easy. Um, I mean, I started swimming at the age of five and, um, you know, doing club nights and with my local club. And butterfly was just a stroke that it was, it's all just rhythm and technique. Um, you know, if you do it right, it can be the most easiest stroke in the whole world. Take us back to that, um, that childhood, that, that, those early days as a young boy and as a young swimmer. Oh, it was awesome. Uh, you know, when I look back at it now, I mean, my, I had an awesome childhood, um, without a doubt. I, I mean, I had two loving parents, which was, which was amazing. Uh, I, I mean, it's, um, we, we didn't have uh, a lot of money. We were, um, we were a, a bunch of battlers. Uh, my father was a miner, my mum was a chef. Uh, my parents split up when I was about five or six, so I was very, very young. Well, we grew up in North Queensland, so it was an environment where if you weren't in the pool, you were in a creek, and if you weren't in a creek, you were swimming in a dam. Um, so my parents got me into swimming. My whole goal and focus, it was all about swimming for Australia um, and representing my country. Just before my 12th birthday, um, I had an opportunity to move down to swim with Ken Wood um, in Redcliffe. And, and once I got down there, um, I just never looked back. It was my whole world. It was everything that, um, yeah, that I ever wanted out of sport and, and pretty much out of life as well. But not long after, Jeff, something terribly sad happens to you, doesn't it? Yeah, that's exactly with right. About, about 12 months later, my father passed away with a heart attack. I came home from training, it was a Tuesday night, and um, so we had club night. And um, so it was really easy to remember. And I remember having a chat with Ken that night, and he was telling me 
um, that as because I was a 12-year-old kid and um, you know if I kept my training up and everything was going well that I'd have an opportunity he was thinking of sending me down to age nationals for me I was pumped you know I was really really excited to want to go down and I remember going home from training that night and having a chat with him and just sharing sharing the good news with him uh, I, I, I do remember in the middle of the night him getting up and obviously having a shower because um, it was a pretty pretty hot summer's night um, and then unfortunately he collapsed in the shower that night and um, you know I was for some reason I, I don't know why I was up um, yeah I just I woke up in the middle of the night and um, I was lucky that I did and um, yeah unfortunately he, he uh, passed away that evening mm. a, a hell of a thing for a young boy yeah it was the hardest thing for anyone to have to go through um, so so with that um, you know I was I was quite lucky that I had the sport to fall into um, you know I, I put myself into the pool and, and and for me that's where that's what gave me relief so to speak um, I'm always a big believer in positives I always believe that things happen in life for a reason right um, you know I mean it'd be quite easy to sit there with everything that happens in life and just say oh well woe is me and this is a, a bad scenario, a bad situation, but I think that these, it's these moments in life that really test you as a, as a human and as an individual um, and it's how you learn from the challenges that are put in front of you. Where do you get that from? I, I'd say my mum, right? My, my mum is, uh, she's an amazing woman. Um, she, yeah, she, um, she's just, uh, she's always had a really strong work ethic. Um, so she held down three jobs while I was always swimming just to give us the opportunity that we could have in life that drive and that motivation is, is the stuff that I took behind the blocks, right? It's that, that killer instinct and that fight and I guess that mongrel. Tell us about that famous rivalry you had with Michael Klim. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, I mentioned his name and you smile. Yeah, I, lo I love love. <laughs> I love Klimmy. Oh, man, we had some good races. <laughs> Didn't you? You had some beauties. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if it wasn't yeah. Hugo, it was Klim. If it wasn't Klim, yeah. it was Hugo. For us, it was so much fun. Yeah. What about for you guys? Oh, mate, there were times there. I remember you could walk into a room and you could just carve it with a knife. <laughs> you could just <laughs> feel the tension. But, but that's the stuff I loved. You'd go into a race, you'd either lose it by 0.01 of a second or you'd win it by 0.01 of a second. You know, when I look back at that era that we came through just leading into Sydney, it was just, it was, it was amazing. You both go into the Sydney Olympics expected to fight it out for the gold medal. How was that feeling? Oh, man, that Olympic pressure is, 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 oh, I will, I've never ever, it's, it's the most pressured moment I've ever felt throughout my whole career. Did you expect it to be? Um, no, I, I, you, couldn't, you couldn't explain to people what that pressure was like. We'll never see Sydney like it was um, 15 years ago. You know, it was pre-9-11, pre-GFC and pre-social media. Um, the place was just buzzing. So how were you feeling semi-final night, Jeff? Yeah, semi-final night, oh, it, just, it was the one place I just didn't want to be. Um, I remember just doing my warm-up and, and the look on Ken's face, he was so pumped and so excited and he's like, how are you feeling, son? And, and then I just turned around and said, oh, mate, I feel pretty ordinary. I just don't want to be, be here today, right? I've got a headache, I feel pretty flat. And, and the look on his face was just priceless. All of a sudden, it just dropped. He's just like, oh my God, we've been training for this moment for the last seven years of our life. And you get here and you're telling me you don't want to be here. Right? And, um, and as he was really good. He's like, look, you just got to remember, let's just go out there and, and just do what we've been practicing. Lane assignments in the first semi-final. Jeff Hugel in lane four. 
I got up behind the blocks and, um, you know, the starters said, take your marks and go, and I went in and, um, you know, just, just sort of let, let the subconscious take over on the whole race. You know? Look at Hugel, he looks very good halfway down the pool the first time. He's out by a couple of strokes. Hugel powering away down towards this turn. Just felt really, really good. I remember coming off the wall and um, I wasn't paying attention to what was going on beside me. And when I look at the replay, I realised that there was no one beside me. He's under world record pace. Around in 24, 1 2, Hugo powerfully through the water. The last five or 10 metres of the race, I sort of, I really just sort of backed it off and just didn't give it any energy. What a performance, Hugo. And he comes to win. Jeff Hugo touches first, 51 9 6. That just is a outside. new Olympic record, a new Olympic record. It's just outside the world record. That was a very, very smart time. It's the fastest time that I'd ever swum, you know. Um, second guy to ever go under 52 seconds. And um, it's amazing from there just what a 24 hours does in terms of Olympic pressure, um, yeah, when you okay. step up behind the blocks. So, Jeff, when did you first feel the pressure of being favourite for the final? Oh, as soon as that, that semi-final was over. OK. <laughs> I was like... My whole focus for seven years was this, to this one point. It was the only thing I ever cared about. Um, and this one point is over in 50 seconds, right? So, so my whole race, my whole life has been focused. Seven years comes down to 50 seconds. We were getting ready and I'm going there for my final coach's talk and Ken comes up to me and, he's, and you know, and I'm all dressed in my suit and I'm ready to go. And, he comes up and, he, and, and I'm waiting for him to tell me the race and he comes up and he pats me on the shoulder and he goes, this is it, son. <laughs> you, know what, you know what you need to do. <laughs> and deep down inside I'm crying out just going, no, I don't know what I need to do. <laughs> just, can you just reinforce this again, <laughs> even though I've won this race a thousand times before? And then, um, and, and then the whole time I was sitting there and, and oh, I just sort of, I, was just, uh, I just had a total mind blank, right? Just had nothing. So your favourite for the 100-metre butterfly in front of a home nation. Can we stretch the friendship? Yeah. Would you like to have a look at it again? I'd love to, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, by all means. The roar that the crowd gave when the two of us walked out behind the blocks was, oh, it was awesome, it was, it was so loud. And the first thing I just kept thinking was, don't miss a start, right? Whatever you do, don't miss a start. Klim and Hugel both sensational races in high-pressure events. And, you know, what always happens when you start thinking something, when you say, you know, with a negative, whatever you do, you'll end up, it'll end up happening, right? So, starter said, take your marks, the gun went, and I just froze on the block for just a split second. Hugel dwelt slightly, the fastest qualifier in 51.96, alongside him, the world record holder. Yeah, well, the whole way, I was just like, oh, man. This is going to be interesting. And I remember coming off the turn and because um, Klimi just had an awesome start and an awesome race. And I came off the wall and as I touched him and I went around, I looked up and he was gone. Like he was, I just saw his feet and he's underwater. His turn was just absolutely blitzed it. Great turn by Michael Klim. Suddenly he's a metre in front. Hugel can't go with him. And I just thought to myself, okay, this is, you've just got to go, right? You've got this, it's just, you just got to go for it. Now Hugel finishing strongly, Klim still in front, Frolander the danger, Klim weakening, Frolander coming over the top, Frolander in lane six, may tip them out, Frolander goes in. Frolander's won, Australia's second and third, Klim is second, Hugel is third. Well, I, I was so upset and I was so shattered, but, um, you know, as time goes by, well, obviously on the night, I was so grateful that I, I did get a bronze medal.
So in the couple of years after Sydney, everything's on track. In the 2001 World Championships, you break your own world record in the 50 butterfly. And so we're looking ahead towards Athens and the Olympics and everything seemingly is going really well. Yes, um, on the outside it is. On the outside it is. I think on the inside, it, I, was, I was losing a lot of drive and motivation. As a 25-year-old kid, um, I wanted to start looking elsewhere at things, you know. I, I mean, I'd been swimming at such a young age. I'd been swimming for 20 years by that point and I'd been swimming seriously for a good 15 years, um, almost with Ken, right? 14, 15 years in the same pool with the same coach chasing the same black line, it's quite easy to see where you're going to get over it pretty quick. So um, I think I worked it out, it's about, roughly about 30-odd thousand kilometres, right? So it's almost the same distance as Sydney to London and back again, right? It's a long swim. <laughs> yeah, have a lot of time to think when you're swimming <laughs> yeah. up and down. And, and how dare Ken then say, he was such a talent, but he wasn't a good trainer. Yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. <laughs> was he right or wrong? Oh, yeah, no, I think he's pretty right around that one. I think one of his, one of his best lines was, uh, Skippy, oh, yeah, mate, that guy thinks manual labour is a Spanish guitarist, right? <laughs> Did he know you well or not? Oh, yeah, he knew, knew, me way too, knew me way too well. You get to the Athens Olympics on talent alone. Is this the period where you're, were you suffering from clinical depression or were you really starting to struggle? Yeah, I started, it, not long after that. Because my whole world was sport, I didn't have anything else outside of sport. And, and when I got to Athens, it was a struggle and a challenge to just get behind the blocks. I think for me, it was just relief to get that race over. You split with your coach, Ken Wood, uh, end up retiring at 25, 26. You said, I'm 10 feet tall, bulletproof, I think the world owes you a living and once you step out into it, everything will take care of itself. Yeah, didn't happen at all. No way. After my father died, I immersed myself into the sport. It's not until I walked away from it that all of those emotions really started to come through, right? And um, why does life have to be this way and how can I be so gifted in one area but in everything else I just fall absolutely apart, right? Uh, I had very good people around me, to tell you the truth, but I also was not at a stage where I wanted to listen. Right, so, um, so I had to learn pretty quick smart, um, you know, by myself uh, uh, about the, the lessons of life, so to speak. So, um, you know, I, I packed my bags up, um, went overseas. I didn't have any responsibility, didn't have a care in the world, which is great. Um, I was pretty disappointed with the way that I'd left the sport um, within myself and I was disappointed about the way that I'd put myself in those situations as well. Um, and I guess some of the ways to deal with all of that sort of stuff was by eating and by drinking and by, yeah, just carrying on like an absolute goose. And in a real sense, we also saw a change in you, didn't we? How heavy did you become? Yeah, so I tipped the scales. I raced Sydney when you saw that footage. I stood up behind the blocks at 87 kilos. <laughs> I ended up tipping the scales at my heaviest, I was 138 kilos. So, um, yeah, it was one of those things that I, I obviously wasn't proud to be in that circumstance and scenario and situation. Um, but but it was, it's easy for me to see the onset of going through that whole journey of how depression really started to set in. You know, when you lose your self-worth as an individual, um, when you don't feel that you have any drive or motivation and everything you think you touch just falls apart. Yeah, I, I think you, you do get to a point, um, yeah, where, when you start to recognise and realise that, hey, I, I really sort of need to start changing my life and start changing my behaviours again. Is this about the time you meet Sarah as well? Yeah, so that was a big catalyst for my change as well. So, um, yeah, met her pretty early throughout that whole change and then 
And then from there, what, what I guess I really got um, too was her family and her support and, um, and, and obviously, yeah, her love, which is amazing. And, um, and, and that was a, a good drive and a motivator. I mean, I, I always wanted to change, but I guess it's having other, it's one thing for you to believe that you know that you want to do these sorts of things, but, um, but look, you, you can't, I don't care who you are, I don't, mate, you, you don't just get to the top of your game by yourself. How hard was it to come back? Did the weight just fall off you? Yeah, no, it was, it was hard. The weight was, it was fluctuating, so it was coming off and then just sort of, I'd go pretty well for six weeks or so and then, you know, you just like everything, you sort of, you know, start eating bad food again and, you know, making poor choices with the decisions in terms of things that you, you're, um, you know, eating and drinking and so on. But being a sleeping giant for six years and not racing, it was all the fast twitch fibre stuff that was going to take time to come back. It was all the racing and getting my body back into race condition again. I knew that there was always going to be the naysayers and, oh, he's too old or he can't do it. Basically, in January 2008, um, yeah, put, put the goal in place. It was, right, if I was going to swim, where would I swim? What would be my easiest option to make a swim team? <laughs> was my first philosophy, right? Because Worlds and Olympics, they only select two per nation, but Commonwealth Games and Pan Packs, they actually select three per nation. So I had my vision, I knew where I wanted to go, and that was the Delhi Commonwealth Games. Tell me about that famous fly, that final, the comeback of all comebacks at the Commonwealth Games in Delhi. Oh, Delhi, yeah, it was, it was electric. It was the best race of my life, without a doubt. Having to shed 50 kilos to get behind the blocks and the challenges that I had to face outside of, uh, outside of the sport, um, that in itself is something that, that um, you know, I draw a lot of strength from. Here's Jeff. I think he looks good. I think he could do it. When I got behind the blocks, I was ready. Right, and, and this time I was like, right, I know exactly what I'm doing this time, I know what I'm here to do, and you know, this time it was nail to start, right? There was no miss to start, it was nail to start, and I was ready to just tear the place apart. We wait no longer, they're into the water in the men's 100 metres butterfly. Australia's Chris Wright in three, Jason Dunford in four, and Jeff Skippy Hugel swimming in lane five, and he's doing well, he's keeping pace with Dunford at this stage. I knew that um, Dunford, the guy that was racing on my right, was going to go out like a bullet. So all I had to do was just sit on his shoulder. Skip is right there with him. Beautiful spot. The turn for me was just awesome. Uh, came off that wall, put half a body length in front of um, Jason Dunford, and then from there it was just grit the teeth and just go. There's 20 metres left to swim. What's 20 metres when you've conquered 40 kilos? Jeff Hugel of Australia, Jeff Hugel of Australia goes in for the kill. The happy ending for Jeff Hugel. Happily ever after it is. It's a Commonwealth Games record. Forget about the old Jeff Hugel that raced in the late 90s, early 2000s. This Jeff Hugel, the reincarnation, is amazing. It was just, it was the best feeling in the world. Just the the jubilation and, and just the, the, the feelings that I had from it was something that I hadn't felt for such a long time, especially in the pool. It, it's amazing what experience will do when you step up behind the blocks. I had speed and um, skill and ability as a young kid, but um, what I didn't have when I stood up behind the blocks at the Olympics was that experience. And I was able to draw on that and take all of that experience into Delhi and the rest is history. So the first career versus the second career as a swimmer, 
Which one gives you the most satisfaction? I think um, I value and appreciated it more the second time around because I knew that there's definitely not going to be a <laughs> third time. You got the best of both worlds in a way, didn't you? I did, absolutely. And, yeah. and your two little girls? Yes. Yeah, Miller and Giselle. Oh, they're stunning. Every, every day I... Oh, they're, they're probably the best thing that's... The, well, the second best thing that's happened in my life, really. So I, I'd say meeting my wife is number one. But um, parenting is... Oh, mate, that is a whole new level, <laughs> level altogether. Don't, don't we know? Yeah, exactly right. And they've come at a good stage in your life, haven't they, now? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Mm. I think um, when everything uh, was falling apart, um, they were the most important people to me, and protecting those girls um, and doing what was required to protect those girls was, was the, the first most important thing, I think. Um, you know, for, for us, it was... It was hard because, um, you know, we had paparazzi at our front door and our back door for three weeks straight. You know, the guys were trying to get the photo of us as a family unit to then sell it to a magazine and then keep the story alive and the flame going. And, um, you know, now that the, the storm has definitely moved on and to be able to take them to the park and to run around with them and to play with them and to put them on the swings and just do all my dad jokes and do all that sort of stuff, that's, <laughs> that's the stuff that, yeah, that matters most to me. And, What's the, give us one dad joke. How do you catch a unique rabbit? I give up. Unique up on it. How oh. do you catch a tame rabbit? <laughs> the tame way. <laughs> I only wanted one. <laughs> <laughs> so I reckon we might finish it with, what were those three words you said to me earlier? Accept it, own it, conquer it. And you're doing that? Yeah, exactly right. As I said, it's regardless of any challenge that you have to face in life, the moment you accept it, you take ownership for it, and when you own it, you can conquer it. It's been a heck Thank of a journey. Bruce. Yeah. Some of it's been rocky. Yeah. But, but what, it's a, life. what a story. <laughs> Thank you very much.